We're in Hebrews chapter 12 today again. We'll be looking at verses 4 through 11. We've got a lot of ground to cover. We'll read that in just a moment. Let me ask you, what are you struggling with in your life? If you're over 40 in our society, you're probably struggling with old age. Or maybe you're struggling against a poor self-image or you're fighting with a boss or a spouse or a child. America's always in some kind of struggle. We were in the war on poverty and then it was the war on drugs. Neither of those turned out all that well. Now it's the war on terrorism, the war on obesity. One wonders how those will turn out. For the author of Hebrews 2, the war is on, but it's a different kind of war. The war on sin. He writes, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Our author uses a Greek word that means to stand against or to resist, and he describes this resistance as a struggle. It's the same root as used in the word translated race in verse 1. It's a contest against sin. Our author personifies sin. It's the Christian's adversary, his foe. Some scholars think that the author of Hebrews is talking about the sin committed against his readers in the form of persecution. Others think the sin the Hebrews were resisting was apostasy, the temptation to deny the faith in order to spare themselves hardship. But our author just doesn't elaborate. Sin is the foe that we fight, and obedience is the objective to which we press. And we must be ready to shed blood in order to get there. Now, there's a graphic picture of this that might have been in his mind in Gethsemane, where Jesus resisted sin, that is, disobedience to the Father, to the point that he sweated, remember, as it were, drops of blood. He resisted unto blood before he shed his blood on the cross. Our author knows that if a person isn't determined to resist sin beforehand, he'll be repenting afterward. The intention to resist sin was articulated in an interesting way by the early 20th century evangelist Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday had a remarkable flair for the dramatic, as you're going to hear. But his attitude is just what the author of Hebrews is looking for. This is what Sunday said. Listen, this is him. Listen, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. And I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old, fistless, footless, and toothless, I'll gum it till I go home to glory. And it goes home to perdition. (laughs) It's no wonder thousands of people would gather whenever he preached. (laughs) Let's read our text, verses 4 through 11, Hebrews 12. We'll put it up there on the screen. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And you've forgotten that word of encouragement that addresses you as sons. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves. And he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is not disciplined by his father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, 
then you are illegitimate children and not true sons. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the father of our spirits and live? Our fathers disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Here's what we need to know with a little nod to the Star Trek fans out there. Resistance is not futile. Our author calls us to join the resistance, but he doesn't want us to go into the fight unprepared. Some people try to resist sin. They really do. They try to resist sin, but they come unarmed and they leave in defeat. Anyone who joins the resistance must come armed with the knowledge that this fight is going to cost him. Our author says, in your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, but the implication is that in this struggle, bloodshed might become necessary. Unless you go into this fight armed with a win-at-all-costs attitude, you're not going to succeed. There's a price for joining the resistance. If you're not willing to pay it, you'll quickly be sidelined. You must also understand what's going on when you're going through difficulty. Strategy is as important as weaponry. Sometimes it's more important. Napoleon was defeated at Waterloo only because Wellington understood where the true assault would come from. Had he not understood what was going on, if he hadn't understood the strategy, he would have fallen just as the Prussian army had before him. We need to understand the strategy. We need to understand that God is training us right now through the hardship we endure. He's using those hardships to shape us, form us, and equip us for service. If we don't understand that, hardships will defeat us. God's plan is to use hardship to accomplish his purpose in us and for us. We mustn't forget the strategy God's pursuing. And he's told us about it in his word. We mustn't forget or we're almost certainly going to fail. I think one of our adversary's chief tactics is to coax us to forget what God wants us to remember and to remember what God wants us to forget. And by the way, the theme of remembering and forgetting is a recurring one in Hebrews. It appears in chapter 6, verse 10, chapter 10, verse 32, chapter 11, verses 15 and 22, chapters, chapter 13, verse 3, verse 7, verse 12, verse 32. This is an important theme. The devil wants you to remember your hurts and forget God's help. To remember your rights and forget your responsibilities. To remember other people's sins while forgetting your own. And most of all, he wants you to forget God. The Bible is full of warnings and remonstrances about forgetting God. I, I did a, just a brief search this, this week and copied out three pages of verses dealing with with forgetting God. Now think of the last time you were in a difficult place. Now it may be right now, but think of that time, get it in your mind. Maybe a fight with your spouse, some period of just relentless temptation, a financial bind, suffering caused by physical illness. Okay, if you got it in your mind. In that situation, how long was it before you remembered God? 
You will not be able to resist sin if you forget God and the word of encouragement he's spoken to you. The Greek word translated forgotten in verse 5 is one of many words in Hebrews that's only used once in the Bible. The lexicon defines it as to forget completely. The root word refers to something that lies hidden. So the word of encouragement he's about to state is one we have heard. It's actually a biblical word. But have forgotten. It lies hidden in the, under the clutter of our lives. But it's a truth that we forget at our own peril. Now, before we look at this important word of encouragement that comes in verses 5 and 6, take a moment to consider the phrase that addresses you as sons in verse 5. We're liable to miss the rich significance of that. The word of encouragement that our author shares is taken from the book of Proverbs. We find it in verses 5 and 6. It's taken from the book of Proverbs, which was written almost a thousand years before he quoted it in his letter. And yet... He takes for granted that that passage from Proverbs, written a thousand years earlier, spoke directly to believers in his day. And he would assume that it speaks to believers in ours as well. Just as God addressed the first readers of this letter, around 70 AD, somewhere around that time, through the scriptures that had been written a thousand years before, so he addresses us. Sometimes we get criticized for taking, we evangelicals get criticized for taking the Bible literally, people say, by which they really mean seriously. But taking the Bible seriously is nothing new. Intelligent, informed people in the first century also believed that God had spoken and was currently speaking. He addresses you, present tense, he addresses you as sons. God has spoken and is speaking through the Bible. That means we must be careful in handling it. We must understand it in its historical context, learn its themes, treat it with respect. If the President of the United States sent you a personal letter, you wouldn't make a paper airplane out of it. But some people do similar dishonor to the Bible by twisting it this way and twisting it that in an effort to prove their own prejudices and promote their own agendas. But if you will approach the Bible with respect and care, with faith in God, and above all, with a willingness to do what it says, God will address you as sons and daughters. The Bible will become your prized possession, a cherished treasure, for through it you'll hear God speak. Now, in the word of encouragement quoted in verses 5 and 6, we are warned against making light of the Lord's discipline. How do we do that? How do we make light of or belittle the Lord's discipline? Let me suggest several ways that might happen. Some people make light of the Lord's discipline simply by refusing to acknowledge it. They are insensible to it. After he went to prison, the disgraced political lobbyist, Jack Abramoff, said, God sent me a thousand hints that he didn't want me to keep doing what I was doing but I didn't listen. He was determined to do what he wanted to do. And that is a precarious place to be in for anyone spiritually. Another way people make light of the Lord's discipline, and as I go through these, just think, does this speak about me at all? 
Another way people make light of the Lord's discipline is by casting blame on others. Instead of saying, Father God, what is it that you want to do in my life through this hardship? They say, it's not my fault. It's not fair. And they blame others. What a huge waste of time and energy. And for that matter, what a huge waste of suffering that is to blame others. Some people belittle the Lord's discipline and they actually do it theologically. They say salvation is by faith, not works. It's not what I do, but what Christ did that matters. Well, of course we are justified by faith. But if we use the doctrine of justification by faith as an excuse for sin, we've become heretics. It's the worst kind of theological sophistry to use the justification Christ won for us by perfect obedience as a way of justifying our disobedience. God is not mocked. Some people belittle the Lord's discipline by denying that he disciplines. You remember when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans? One of the TV preachers immediately began saying that the disaster was God's judgment on the immorality of that city. And people from politicians, the president, to preachers lined up to denounce that guy. And the humorists ridiculed him for weeks. Now, I too doubted that the man was speaking for God. Because God's way is to warn people before the fact, not reproach them after. You see? But I never doubted for a moment that God exercises discipline and acts in judgment. Yet that is precisely what many people refuse to believe. Now, that preacher's pronouncement may have been nothing more than a publicity stunt. I don't know. But the idea that his critics seem to hold of a do-nothing God, a distracted elderly grandfather in heaven, is totally wrong. The Bible makes perfectly clear that God is involved in the lives of his people and in the affairs of the world. Let me mention one more way people make light of the Lord's discipline. It's a very different way. It's not that they deny that God disciplines. They recognize that God wants to use some difficulty to shape them. They believe that he's at work in this thing in their lives. And they promise him their obedience. Oh God, I'll do whatever. But as soon as the difficulty is resolved, their resolve is dissolved. And they go right back to the same ways of thinking and acting. In the Bible, we see Israel do this over and over again. But making light of the Lord's discipline is not the only mistake we can make. There is an equal, equally destructive, and opposite error that we also need to avoid. We can, this is still verse 5, lose heart at his rebuke. The word translated lose heart in the NIV is elsewhere translated as collapse, faint, give up. When God shows us that we are outside his will in our thoughts, our actions, our relationships, that is when He reveals our sin to us and calls us to change. We can either turn to him for help or turn from him and give up. The Greek word that's translated here as lose heart 
has to do with something that unravels or comes apart at the seams. And that is just what some people do when God points out the sin in their lives. They say, oh, it's impossible. I can't handle this. There's nothing I can do about it. And with that kind of talk going on in their heads, they eventually fall apart. We need to avoid both errors. We mustn't fall apart as if God despises us. He does not. Or belittle his discipline as though we despise him. We must not. Rather, we must remember that God, verse 6, disciplines those he loves. Now look at verse 7. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as sons. Once we get it settled in our minds that God disciplines his children because he loves them, we can learn to use hardship as a component in our spiritual training regimen. In the case of the Hebrew Christians who first received this letter, that hardship was persecution. Now, I don't want us to miss the significance of that. It's important that we get this. God certainly did not want his people to be persecuted. That was not his will. And yet he used the persecution, and he encouraged his people to use it as discipline. That's a tremendously important principle. When evils come into our life, we mustn't jump to the conclusion that they are God's doing, but we must cling to the conviction that God will use them for our good. He imposes his will on what is not his will. He turns evil on its head. God sets up a world where real choices make a real difference. And it's a broken world, broken by sin and visited by disaster. The consequences of rebellion are ubiquitous and they are painful. And God does not, as a rule, remove those consequences. However, he does, as an inviolable rule, use them for good. It's misleading for some people to say of some tragedy, and I've heard this over and over again, I know God had a reason for doing this, as if God thought of and sent the tragedy only to accomplish some mysterious purpose he had in their lives. There's plenty of evil to go around without talking that way. But don't make any mistake. God will use blessing and bane good and evil, tragedy and comedy for his people's good, and nothing can prevent him from doing so. Nothing, including in the trouble you're in right now. That's what he does. That's his part. Our part is to endure hardship as discipline. Now, how do we do that? Let me offer you four suggestions. First, ask God to show you his presence in every hardship. You absolutely need to find God in your trouble. And that is much easier to do when you're already in the habit of finding God in everything. Ancient Christians developed a practice called the examine in which they would review each day 
before God. They weren't looking for some deep psychological revelation about themselves. They were just reviewing their day with God in case he had something to say to them about it. But in that way, they learned that he'd been with them all day long in good things and bad, in happiness and sorrow. The examine is one way of doing what our author told us to do in verse 2, to fix our eyes upon Jesus. If we are used to doing that in daily life, it will make finding God in times of hardship much easier. Find God in your hardship. He is surely there. Second way to endure hardship is discipline. Consider deeply, that is, meditate on Jesus' own example of perseverance. That's just what our author told us to do in verse 3. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. There's that word. You won't collapse, you won't faint, you won't come apart at the seams. Consider Jesus. I follow this instruction by regularly immersing myself in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life. I've had a pattern now for years where in my daily devotional time when I read scripture, I will read scripture for perhaps the, gospel, uh, the, the letter to the Colossians, and then I'll go back to one of the gospels. I may read the book of Judges, then I'll go back to one of the gospels so that I can read and memorize and meditate on Jesus so I can fix my eyes on him. I want, in our author's words, to consider him who endured. Third way to endure hardship as discipline is recall the prize and reaffirm your commitment to possess it. Now, what's the prize? The prize is to be conformed to the image of God's Son. The prize is to be like Jesus, free, strong, loving, confident, happy, holy children of God. You will think like Jesus. This is the the prize. You will think like he thinks. Respond like he responds. Enjoy like he enjoys and care like he cares. God will use everything in your life, all things, all things that happen in you, to you, and around you for that very purpose, to shape you into the form of his son. That's the harvest of righteousness and peace that verse 11 describes. Not just a fruit, but a harvest that comes from enduring hardship is discipline. We give you a fourth way to endure hardship is discipline. And that is to learn to use every hardship situation for training. Learn to use it to train yourself spiritually. Look at verse 11 now. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. That last line is both inspiring and disconcerting. It's inspiring because the potential for gain is a harvest of righteousness and peace. But it's disconcerting because clearly it's possible to go through hardship, the hardship you're in right now, to go through hardship 
loss, insult, and injury without deriving any benefit. Instead of using hardship for training, we can wallow in our pain and complain about how unfair it all is. What ripens for harvest in that case is bitterness, which is a diabolical substitute for righteousness. No one feels more righteous than the bitter person. We'll see more about that when we get to verse 15. When righteousness is harvested, it's refined as peace in your life. But bitterness ferments into turbulence and division. It's from the Greek word that the NIV NIV translates as trained in verse 11, or exercise, how the King James has it, that we get the English word gymnasium. Some people will choose to turn hardship into a spiritual gymnasium in order to beef up, while others will choose to use to let hardship beat them down. But either way, there's a choice. We can choose to use hardship to train ourselves in righteousness, but it won't happen automatically. Hardship becomes transformational only when we stop running from it or complaining about it and take hold of it to use it for training. We're going to talk more about this, the how-tos, how to use hardship for training on Wednesday night. We have a Bible study and prayer time meets right out there. So if you have children who are starting Awana this week or in youth group, consider joining us for an hour on Wednesday nights. It's a lively conversation. It's a good study. Now, the fact that hardship can be used for training may be a new idea to you. may never have occurred to you before. I read about a woman in Leadership Journal for whom that idea was totally new. Her name was Muriel. Muriel. Muriel's childhood had left her emotionally crippled. By the time she was in her teens, she was repeatedly placed in the hospital psychiatric unit. By her late 40s, she had seen more counselors, therapists, and psychiatrists than she could remember. She had been through 61 rounds of electric shock therapy and was taking enough medication to subdue an elephant. Muriel was haunted by the cruel things that had been done to her. Then one day she went to see a new therapist although she had little hope that things were ever going to change, the therapist listened to Muriel's story and then asked a simple question. How would your life be different if someone had come alongside you when you were 14 and showed you your strengths instead of telling you that you were sick? In other words, what would your life be like if someone had helped you use what happened to you rather than be consumed by it? Muriel said, in all those years, I'd never considered that. And then I saw it. I wasn't stuck in my life as I knew it. My life could be otherwise. I decided there and then to live it otherwise. I changed my mind about who I was. And that changed everything for her. She learned you could use hardship for discipline. Don't, here's here's the thing. You can let your hardship dictate who you will be. Or you can let who you will will be, the person God is making you, the person who will think and act and care and feel and love like Jesus, dictate what your hardship will accomplish. 
Do the latter. Now let me close with one more story about someone who learned to endure hardship as discipline. It was a, a terrible day when the songwriter Brian Dirksen, we sing some of his songs, Refiner's Fire, Come, Now is the Time to Worship, when Brian Dirksen and his wife learned that their young son had a genetic disorder that would stunt his development physically, mentally, and emotionally. When Brian got back home, he says he stumbled around his property, weeping, confused, and heartbreaking, broken, and he handed in his resignation to God. He said, God, I'm done. I am through being a worship leader and a songwriter. I'm done. Now, let me share his words with you. When I was able to be quiet enough to hear, I sensed God holding out his hand and inviting me, will you trust me? That, by the way, is something God says to us often. Will you trust me? Will you go even with your broken heart? For who will relate to my people who are heartbroken, if not those like you who are acquainted with disappointment? That was the turning point for Brian, who says, I used to think people were most blessed by our great victories. Now I know differently. People are just longing to hear others speak of how they walk through the deepest valleys. The world lifts up the victorious and the successful, but God lifts up the brokenhearted. Find God in your difficulty. Find your strength in his grace. Endure the hardship as discipline and trust God to bring good to you and through you to others. Now let's pray. Lord, there's so much here. I pray you'll help us digest it. The things that you want to stick in our minds, I pray you'll, you will place there and not let us get away from them. And help us to practice this. For the sake of your purpose. In the name of your son. Jesus. Amen.